These are very hard contemporary times in the largest sense. But one of the very good things of the last 30 or 40 years is people are starting to name what they have and it's starting to be understood not as an embarrassment. A person can say, I have a friend who um, has joined an OCD group because one of the things that his mind does is it obsessively thinks of what could be uh, what could I have done wrong? I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Did I lock the car when I left it? Uh, where did I leave it? I left it there. But maybe I didn't. Maybe I left it in the other parking lot. I don't want to say who's got that because, but it's a very uncomfortable thing. My friend recently, uh, first of all, saw an appropriate doctor about it. And there are medications that calm down the mind. But he's also in a group where everybody has that. That's a group of special thing, people who have that. And it normal, it doesn't make it a normal thing to have, but he no longer has to think I'm the only person in the world that's got this and everybody else is walking around okay. One of the things that's become all right it, to talk about is uh, mental differences. Like one of the things that has become all right to talk about is illnesses that uh, I, I probably have told you that uh, somebody told me recently about um, a friend of hers who wrote a book or an essay called um, uh, Not Very Well at All, but Thank You for Asking, something like that. Because they're talking about what do you do with a person who you know has been struggling with an intractable disease, uh, some form of cancer. And you're walking, you're in the grocery store and you meet them or you're walking down the street and you meet them and you think, uh-oh, I shouldn't ask them how are you because they might have to say whatever. But uh, the person who wrote the book, who was a person with some ongoing illness that was being treated ongoing, 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 she said the thing you do is you say, how are you? Like you're a person and then you can respond not very well. Thank you for asking. Because otherwise, there's this huge thing in between you that nobody is mentioning, as if it's some sort of a flaw to have a disease, or uh, we don't mention that. Um, I mentioned the last time, I guess what, really, where am I going with this? What, what did I have in mind? I've been carrying around with me for two weeks and teaching from a piece of paper that I now can't find. <laughs> I can't find it. Oh, here it is. That's why I found it. Um, did I read this to you? This is a, a an article about um, looking at grief, confronting grief by a woman who's a um, written a book. She's an end of life counselor. Did I read it to you the last time? I can't remember because I taught it somewhere last week. No, Dwayne says no. It's a woman who's a, um, a palliative care physician who says that uh, she could not have imagined previously being in, going into the specialty of palliative care where people know that what they have is um, a treatable disease but, that, but not a curable disease and that they are on the path to an earlier than they had imagined death. And uh, the whole science of palliative care and the practice of palliative care become an important thing because people are living longer and longer with different forms of life support and in different forms of uh, discomfort from it. And uh, the, the part that I have uh, outlined from here is she's saying it, it i'm surprised myself that i become a palliative care physician because everybody that i go to see is in some way on in the act of dying we all are of course but in a you know the death is in sight this this is the paragraph i've learned to look when i want to look away i have chosen to stay when i'd prefer to run out of the room and cry the prelude to compassion is the willingness to see. 
that actually is the line that I took out. I've got it uh, overlined here in the paper. I wrote it on top of my notes for what to talk about today. The prelude of compa to compassion is the willingness to see. If we really looked around and saw that everybody is somewhere before they're going to die, closer or further. First of all, you never know because accidental things happen all the time. But to look at everybody uh, as if they are uh, the bearer of an incurable illness, because we all are. And when the Buddha said the important thing to know is impermanence, that to know impermanence, to know suffering, to know interconnectedness, I can see them all in different ways. But this life is impermanent. We keep inexorably, as long as we get up in the morning, we did another day. And we have children and grandchildren that we hope so much will grow up and, and grow up and be healthy in their bodies and live in a healthy world. And we've had really tremendous challenges to that in the last couple of years. The last, um, the last month, who would have thought before, um, in the brief window between people saying cautiously, I think that the uh, pandemic may be over. And uh, I, want, I, I want to look at everybody, not just at me. How to do that? No, no, I'm looking at. Okay. Excuse me. I want to be sure I'm looking at everybody. There I am. Uh, I feel a little bit when I'm looking at all of you together that we're in a room together. And I, you know. And I've come more and more to appreciate how, since we're not in a physical room together, how wonderful it is that you've all invited me into your homes. I feel uh, I, I, I feel very moved by it. You see, everybody lives in different circumstances, but I like this. If we looked at everybody and realized that everybody has the same illness that we have called life, which is terminal, and that we're all always in the process of getting used to being in a new place. You know, as you get older, uh, I spend a lot of time talking. I'm in one particular group that's been meeting regularly now for a year, uh, uh, who are uh, uh, women Dharma teachers over 80. <laughs> it's a small group. <laughs> But not so small. I think we're seven people, maybe eight. Uh, but we're part of the group of people in this world that are at different stages of coming along. And that, that probably goes in the list of what there are groups of them, groups of people with obsessive compulsive disorder. And there are people that are women Dharma teachers over 80. And there are people who like to read Victorian literature again and again and discuss it. And it's wonderful to find your group within the bigger group of human beings. And it's such a thing these days, such an important thing to start to think of. We are all part of the larger group of people inhabiting this very small planet that is currently jeopardized with failing as a planet to be able to support us. I used to think I thought last year while we were all in the COVID that we were each of us in our particular home, in our particular community, in our particular region of the country, in our particular country, in each of those my particular, nobody has exactly the same story that's happening in my home. Next door, something else is happening, and next door, and next door, and next door. But we are all of us living in California in a fire zone. So that makes us, I care what we do about driveways here and what we do about trimming the hedges and 
how we take courses and what kind of plants you should have and not have so that fires don't demolish your house. And that subgroup. And then I have the bigger group of people in the United States and politics, thinking about politics and voting. And I'm in the bigger group of people living in the world that was uh, uh, impervious to borders because viruses don't know about borders. Viruses get on planes and and get across borders. And for two years, we were all uh, really uh, awake to the uh, global pro- uh, threat of the virus. And now that that seems to be dying down a little bit, the threat about that of a viable planet. And now all of a sudden, here in the middle of the mo, obviously, of course, a totally modern, developed world, people are talking about tactical nuclear weapons. I can't believe that. I can't, you know, I, I, I can't believe it. I told somebody, I told a group I was teaching a week ago, I was remembering back, somebody asked, how did you get into this whole uh, business of spiritual practice and all that? And I remember saying to them, uh, in the 1970s, uh, people suddenly became interested in uh, spiritual practice. And every weekend there was another um, another course that you could take. You could get initiated into TM or initiated into Arika or initiated into things I don't even remember their name of or... Uh, you could go sit with uh, uh, Muktananda, or you could go and learn with another teacher. And my husband was very, uh, during the week he worked, he had an entirely regular, normal kind of work that he did. But every weekend he went and took some initiation into that and studied with this and studied with that. And we would talk about it a lot. And he would say uh, he, that he was really interested in all these paths because he said, I really want to understand life. And I would say to him back, you know, not me. I really just want to be able to stand life. And uh, when I tell that now, people think that's dear and cute and they laugh at it. But honestly, I want to be able to stand it. I can hardly stand it that people are talking about tackling it, tactical nuclear weapons. I can hardly stand it to look at pictures of women and children saying goodbye to their men at the Polish-Ukrainian border and having the men go back and the women get into cars or trains. I'm pretty sure you can't stand it either. I don't do it too much because I can't figure it out. I, I can't figure it out as the a mild thing to say. It's it's impossible that that should be happening. In my very lifetime, the last time I looked at people putting children on trains was in the early 1940s. I you know I I did this already in my life. I can't stand it again. I do it. I mean I I I don't do it excessively. I I read the paper or I watch NPR, which is the least arousing. But I think to myself, I can't stand the idea. Oh, well, it's a, maybe it's too harsh of a word. But honestly, what I want to talk about is, and this is a long way to get around it, is how can we stand it, what's going on? How can we come through to the other end? What are we going to do? It's not just to say that this is unbelievable. and It is almost unbelievable. And I don't know what it means about um, this is a people because people are often saying, well, it's because we're still tribal or we're still this or we're still that. Uh, I don't feel myself to be tribal. Uh, I don't like anybody's children being menaced or anybody being menaced. Um, You know what I find unbelievable? I find it unbelievable 
that um, one of my granddaughters is a, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, sonographer. She does, she's the person who does sonograph in a hospital. And uh, she particularly works with OBGYN. And so that her, her skill is looking at um, babies in utero and being able to see if there's something amiss. And I hear amazing stories about uh, uh, discovering through sonographic means, uh, not necessarily she did, but people do can discover some anomaly like uh, a baby with uh, three ureters rather than two. Uh, and one is does not lead to a bladder, uh, something like that. The other two do. And some way to, by means of a laser or something or other, connect, correcting that before the child is born. We can do prenatal corrective surgery on babies before we're born. That's an amazing thing that people can have figured out how to do. They have not figured out how to outlaw killing each other purposely. Not only not with nuclear weapons, not with any weapons. We haven't figured out how to stop killing people and stop othering them. In a, in a, in a culture, in a society, in a world where we have figured out how to land on Mars, we should certainly have figured out how not to kill each other. I don't pretend to have the answer to that. I just find that astonishing. You know, I, I don't know what should happen in this moment. Uh, you know, I, I think it's too late. I bet I hope they figure out something to do. But I find that mind-boggling. And I don't want to say, because I don't believe it's true, that human beings have not developed the ability to overcome their um, aggressive urge. But, you know, I think most of people have. Most of people have. I think most people would be happy with the world not fighting. They could just go home at night and have the wherewithal to take care of their children and their family and raise their kin and nurse their elderly or their sick. Most people don't need to be at a pinnacle of power. And I don't know what it's about. But I am coping, counting on whatever is my um, whatever I know whatever I know and whatever I have developed from this practice of mindfulness to keep me in the position of people who are um, going to be around among the consolers when terrible things happen I don't want to be among the angry people I want to be among the consolers and it's hard to do. And it's also not hard to do because, you know, there's no point being angry. My mind is, is dismayed enough with what's going on. I said to myself this morning, let's not get into a personal rant <laughs> because I feel very strong as you've now, now I, that wasn't a personal rant. I was just saying that what's on everybody else's mind. I don't want to pretend that the world isn't happening and we're all here. I want to say, I, I looked down on my paper and it said, tell the story of the salt in Charles de Gaulle Airport. I didn't know when I was going to tell the story, but it just came to me before we started the class. And I, I thought I would tell the story of the salt. Because backing off from the story, I'll, I'll write the caption for the story first, and then I'll tell you the story. I keep thinking, if we could just realize that everybody's children are as dear to them as ours are to us, that everybody is depending on everybody else making this a, help, a, a, a livable world, a few people with a lot of power, and maybe some ideas that I can't imagine what 
have the power to make it turn out so we can continue to live on this planet or not. But I think most people would like to continue to live and take care of their children. And I think that on the, on the individual level, to the degree that I and everybody else can see everybody else as everybody's struggling, everybody's struggling on every side. And on the level that I can do anything, that's only on the level of my own heart. So I'll tell you the story about the, the, the salt in the Charles de Gaulle airport. Some years ago, it couldn't have been too long ago, it would probably be in the last 10 years. Um, I was coming back from a trip to France. For a while, we were spending our holidays in the south of France. And uh, we were coming back and we'd been there for three weeks. And uh, I wanted to bring gifts for my friends, but I travel lightly, you know. Anyway, I just had one bag, one suitcase. And I have, I'm happy to say I have a fair number of friends. So I wanted to bring them each a gift. And one of the things that uh, the south of France around the part that I lived in, in near to Spain, is uh, they have very good salt in Provence. They have different kinds of salt, different flavors of salt. And in the supermarkets, you can buy quite inexpensively little boxes little jars with a, a top about you know the size of a little spice box. You take off the cover and it's full of pink salt or gray salt or a different kind of salt. And so you can buy sel de Provence and sel uh, du Midi. You can get salt from different kinds of parts of France. And you can get a flavored salts from different kinds of France, parts of France. So I bought maybe 10 little bottles of that, and I packed my suitcase. And then, you know, your suitcase is all packed, and you're about to zip up the top. And I tucked the salts all around, because you can just stick your hand in and get it inside of the suitcase. So I was sticking my salt in around the suitcase all around, because they have a fabric cover, so it'll just stretch that much. And I zip it all in. And I go to the airport, and um, I was flying alone, I remember. I don't remember why, but anyway, I was coming back from France. And uh, it, uh, it was uh, a time when, for whatever reason, there was a lot of security in the airport that morning. But I imagine there's always been, for the last two decades, there's been a lot of security in the airports. So I, I wheel my, my roll-on bag with me. I go through the checkpoint, I go through the, the goes, it get, gets seen through the x-ray thing, and I we come up to my gate, and then I find at the gate, they uh, again have people checking the suitcase, not every person, I suppose, but I get indicated you have to go to the, there's table set up, and there's people at all those tables opening the suitcase and looking in. So this young man is there, and I, I put my suitcase up, and he unzips it, and he's feeling around, and he pulls out one of these bottles of salt, and he says, what's this? So I speak French, and I say, it's salt. Uh, it looks, it's not, it's not, I, and he didn't recognize it. So he uh, hails his supervisor on the other side of that, area. I can see he's hailing the supervisor and he takes this little bottle, jar, it's a jar, and he holds it up in the air and he's pointing to it. And I can see the supervisor says like this, <laughs> that kind of get rid of it sign. So uh, he puts it on the side and then he's feeling around. He's got another one. What's this? I said, you know, Salamem shows it's the same salt. And he shows again, and the supervisor does again, that cut thing, putting it over here. And he goes systematically around the whole thing and holds all my 10 jars now out here. And they're out of my suitcase, and he's going to put them in the garbage there. 
uh, and I'm getting more and more upset. And I said, and I speak French, so I said to him, um, I, I don't know, it was a mean thing to say. It was really when you think about it. I said, do you enjoy your job? I, it just came to me to say that. It was a little mean, retrospectively, but it came out of my mouth. Do you enjoy your job? And he looked at me and he said, Madame, do you think I enjoy doing this? Indicating, you know, going through people's dirty laundry and whatever they've got. Do you think I enjoy doing this? And all of a sudden, I felt terrible. Of course, I didn't think he enjoyed doing that. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a terrible job when you think about it. He's got to stand there all day, poking around in people's in people's laundry, and telling them you can't take this and you can't take that and you can't take the other. And I don't know how you advance in that job. What do you go up to? Is he looking forward to another forty years of poking in people's laundry or whatever? It doesn't look to me to be a job that you would necessarily be envisioning a career doing. And all he said, Madame, do you think I enjoy doing this? And I realized I didn't think that. I really didn't think that. And then I felt really bad about giving him a hard time about it. So I, I, my, uh, you know, like my mind recouped itself. And I said, listen, by the way, you probably have a mother. Take these salts home to your mother because I'm sure she would enjoy having them. Uh, give them to her. And he said, I can't do that, and throws them into the trash thing. So then I sat down and I felt really like I, whatever had been going on in my mind, this thought, that thought, why do they make this so hard? Da, 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 da. It's a hard job to be doing what he's doing in an airport that's under high alert most of the time. So I sat down and I sat down and all the anger, I didn't break, you know, my salt is gone. But I looked around and all of a sudden, I'm looking at all the other people in this boarding lounge now sitting ready to get on the plane. And I thought to myself, everybody's got something on their mind. And I started to just naturally to be wishing them well. May you fly well. May wherever you're going work out all right. I was actually praying for them and wishing them well. And I was wishing that guy, my inspector, well and thinking about it's also uncomfortable. I was wishing myself well. It's a long flight. Once I get on it, it's 10 hours. It's a long sit. And I realized in that moment that the mind gets carried away. And if, it, if something catches it up short, it's full of something. It's full of disease or volcanoes or whatever it's full of. But all of a sudden, here this young man looks at me and says, Madame, you think I enjoy this job? And of course I didn't think that. And my mind was like, whoa, everybody is suffering. Me, them, the world. And, and then I sat down and I was really in my own, like, uh, I, it's like a newly awakened state. You realize everybody's suffering. Everybody is sitting here, schlepping their suitcases, waiting to get on board, to sit on for 10 hours, 10 and a half, probably sit on a plane that's not comfortable we're all uncomfortable if we all got out in the morning and looked around and thought everybody is uncomfortable when we said to people have a good day we'd really mean it you know that not just you know uh we mean it from the bottom of our heart we really get it that this whole enterprise i think when i was when i was a, a young teacher I was never a young teacher because I started to practice when I was 41 years old. I went to my first retreat. Um, so maybe 10 years later, I was teaching um, freshmen uh, at Dominican College in San Rafael. And they had to take a, uh, uh, a required religion course. And uh, the teacher of that course was on sabbatical, so I taught it for that year. And I tried to start in with the Buddha said that everything is dukkha, and uh, which is a word for mean uncomfortable, not satisfying. And these are Marin County students uh, in a in a period between wars, in a period with, that the United States was um, it was different. It was different in the in the late 80s, coming on 1990, it was different. 
And they'd grown up in Marin County in affluent households. And they hadn't suffered a lot in the way of, they hadn't been uh, refugees from one or another country. They hadn't been malnourished. They hadn't been in poor health. They didn't have people in poor health without health care in their families. Uh, they they were confused when they say, you know, uh, uh, the Buddha said that life is uncomfortable. It hadn't been for them. And you have to think about, well, did this ever happen to you? Did you ever fall in love with somebody and they didn't love you back? Oh, yeah. But they're 19 years old. That hasn't, you know, it, it's... Do you ever have a dog that died? Yeah. But, I mean, the suffering of everyday life, they hadn't known anything about. And actually, in the Buddhist sutras, there are different degrees of suffering. There's the suffering of everyday life. Where am I going to eat next? Where am I going to lie down? Where will I sleep? There's, and then uh, and the suffering of disease, the suffering of poverty, the suffering of war. And then, then of course, the extra suffering that the mind creates on top of the suffering of actual, on top of the difficulty, the mind doesn't know how to deal with it. And the, what, the, uh, what the Buddha was really talking about when he was talking about ending suffering was not ending all of the suffering of being a person in the world, but ending the extra discomfort of not dealing with the suffering well. That's really what we're meant to do with developing a compassionate mind because the antidote to the mind behaving, responding ineptly to its discomfort is really the liberation from what the Buddha would have said. This is a suffering that we can liberate ourselves from. I think Krishnamurti said it this way. Someone told me this recently. He said uh, Krishnamurti was a uh, recognized uh, savant or recognized um, person. He was recognized as having a mind that was liberated. Um, in, the, in around 1950, and he did a certain amount of writing, he was uh, the people who had raised him up and recognized him as an extraordinary child and an extraordinary teacher, wanted him to become their spiritual leader. And he said, I'm not doing the spiritual leader thing. But he did a certain amount of teaching. And he, uh, somebody told me recently, my friend Cliff Saren, whom some of you know, because he sometimes comes and teaches his class. Cliff said, what, what Krishnamurti said is the thing with me is I don't mind what happens. I think, oh, I don't know, do you get that? Who gets that? I mean, I get what he's saying. I mean, anybody here can do that? <laughs> I even just went one step further than that. I not only mind, I can't stand it, you know, that's happening. That's worse than not minding. And, then, and I, you know, I, I say that it's a very serious thing to say, but I, you know, obviously saying it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because I am standing it. We are all standing it. We got up this morning. We got dressed. We put on earrings. We put on shoes and socks. We do things. So that means we do stand it. It's an amazing thing that human beings can stand it. But why it doesn't convert everybody to impartial kindness is what's amazing to me. I'm just now reminding that myself that um, one of the books that I wrote, I guess, in, wait a minute, Pay Attention for Goodness, no, I don't know. One of them, one of them begins with um, a quote that I read on a plaque on the first retreat that I went to that said, life is so difficult, how, we can, how can we be anything but kind? And I remember saying, I don't know how many times I've said in the course of 30 years of teaching, that's what started me. Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? Why isn't everybody converted to kindness? I'm sure we all are. 
Because here we all are. You wouldn't be here if you didn't subscribe to that. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to convert the mind to kindness. We have not yet sat, and it's 11 o'clock. I'd like for us to sit a little bit. Or a lot. <laughs> uh, you know what I was thinking about last night? I was thinking about, you know, what, what to teach. It's always the same thing. That Here, I, I said, uh, my, uh, Carlita is going to want to know what's the name of this talk. I wrote down the prelude to compassion is the willingness to see. That you can't see wake me up when it's, you can't say wake me up when it's over. You know, and I'll go live in a mountain retreat center by myself for the next three years and you tell me when it's over. You have to see, but not only with your visual eyes, but see with your heart. Then I also thought, nah, I'm going to say that. Uh, maybe the name of this talk is By Not Clinging to Fixed Views, which is one of the last lines uh, in the Metta Sutta. I think that's that's really it, isn't it? By not having the view that you're good and you're bad and this I like and this I don't like and this uh, even this I want and this I don't want to be able to say, well, I, I'm sure I've said this to you, I don't know how many times, my friend who died who said, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. How can you not want the other? Unless you're maybe Krishnamurti or this particular friend. I want a lot other. I want this war to stop. I want the world to have clean water. I want to stop polluting the air. I want all the nuclear weapons in the world to get taken apart. I guess it's not about not wanting, it's about not having the imperative. What we're working on is not having the imperative, because imperative in the mind clouds the mind and then you can't figure out what the right action is. That's really the reason not to have imperative. You think, well, how does imperative make it worse? because it really gets in the way of thinking, what should I do next? What could make it better? And so those were two things. I was going to say by not clinging to fixed views. I was also going to call this class, uh, I changed my mind which is as some sort of, uh, it used to be, maybe it still is, the slogan of Tricycle Magazine. Who knows? Is it still the slogan of Tricycle Magazine? But uh, it was, and in the very beginning of Tricycle Magazine, they used to have an I Changed My Mind day every summer in Central Park in New York. And different speakers from Tricycle Magazine would be there. <clears throat> it was called Change Your Mind Day. And I did change my mind over these 40 years or so. I changed it from being as labile as it used to be. I uh, changed it from uh, being caught up in my stories of imperiled to being able to recognize, not without distress, because when you have the thought, uh-oh, it's two minutes after three and they didn't call, that's that's already painful. But the, that simultaneously, I think, with that, I've just uh, done my habit again. It's probably not true. So that's better. It's not all gone. You don't erase it. It's like if you have an operation and you have a scar, it gets lighter and lighter and lighter. It probably never goes away altogether. It doesn't go away, the habit of the mind. 
but that but the response to it ameliorates it gets less so i think i changed my mind and i i think i've said in recent weeks uh that uh that my hope and practice is to really condition my mind to a compassionate response in every in every instance and i think i'm doing that i think it's getting better um even these last few days is terrible images of what's happening i'm not angry mostly I'm not angry uh, as much as i am so sad i'm really sad about it and i'm not as I, i've said and i i don't mean it as a joke uh if someone had come and said to me in the beginning of of my interest in dharma why don't you take up mindfulness practice it'll make you kinder i would have said thanks a lot you know that's not my problem i'm pretty kind as it is i i need a practice that's going to make me less anxious uh more something less anxious and i am less anxious i am less anxious and more steady and more able to be with difficulty and with loss I did actually I think it's the most important thing I ever learned. But it has made me more kind. I didn't need it to become kind, but I became more kind and more careful. It did change my mind. That's why we practice. I'm always quoting that the uh, great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. I would really prefer that they make peace today and figure it out. I find it so heartbreaking to see whole pieces of cities indiscriminately destroyed, made into rubble. What's the point of that? destroying life I and mean, that's you know way more terrible but what's the point of destroying cities it's like it's like a you know, in a in a in a civilization that can go to mars and build spaceships that go to mars it does not make any what's the point anyway I don't know what I think about Krishnamurti and his thing about the, the, the thing with me he said is I don't mind. I mind. Do you mind that this is happening? What do you think? I do. I mind. Not everybody's indicating and thinking about it. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about it a little later, but I think we certainly need to meditate. Oh, I know what I was going to say. On the morning after uh 9/11, morning after the September 11th, 2001, when we all woke up to that terrible news. The morning, the next morning, uh, it was a Wednesday. And what we did in Spirit Rock because we were still getting the news of how many people had died and um a lot of people came to Spirit Rock that morning and I think they came because they wanted a place to sit quietly with like-minded people and we sat and then we did two things that I remember were you there that day Joe we were there I I remember that we um we talked about who knew somebody there who who had a relative who was killed or a relative that was affected by it because it was important to connect that way and uh then we sat we talked a long time about that and then we sat for a while and then at the end of the sitting we took refuges and precepts do you, do you all know what that means how many people know what that means uh, i see some people not uh 
there are precepts by which people who say, I want to devote myself to this practice, sometimes say, I devote myself to the layman practice of not uh, taking lives, not taking things that don't belong to me, not using my sexuality in a way that's uh, harmful um, uh, or exploitive, which is harmful, not using speech in a way that's harmful or exploitive, which means telling people lies or lying about people, and not taking uh, intoxicants that cloud the mind. And I offered them, and we, um, it doesn't, by the way, if, if I recite them at the end of this morning sit, you don't have to think, oh, oh I accidentally became a Buddhist. The, it's not it's not a sign up for being a Buddhist. It's just uh, it's just a way of saying I acknowledge these are good ways to live. And that's what we did. And I thought afterwards that everybody felt a little bit you couldn't feel good, but somewhat soothed because not because we said that, because but because in a in a world full of people who do terrible things like blow up the World Trade Center. Um, there are still people, the people in this room where we are now, are the people who are devoted to kindness. And you feel yourself in a room of people devoted to kindness, you feel better. So we'll sit quietly. Would you... Uh, I hope you don't mind. I don't know what to say. At the end, I will say the precepts. I hope you don't have a problem with my saying it. It doesn't make you absolutely, it doesn't, it doesn't sign you up to be a Buddhist. I'm a Jew. I'm going to offer those precepts. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> Except make your heart feel good. So look at all the people. There are four pages of people. I hope you can turn your on your not so much. Well, the cat and the dog are still sleeping. That's good. And look at the people. And if you want to, close your eyes. For a while, just listen to the sound of silence around you.
See if you can bring your attention from the sound of silence all around you, which wakes up the ears and often the whole body, to the sense of your body just sitting here and breathing in and out. reaching out towards the whole rest of the world and then coming back into itself. I sometimes like to say the phrase to myself, peace and ease. And I say peace as I breathe in and ease as I breathe out. It just is kind of like a metronome to keep me refocusing and refocusing and feeling here with a mind this moment of peace and a body at ease, peace and ease. Feeling yourself here. Let's spend a few minutes sitting quietly, wishing peace and ease to yourself.
If it's helpful for you to say to yourself peace and ease as you breathe in and out, then try to use that. You don't have to use it with every single breath. But if you remind yourself from time to time, it's more likely to have your attention stay present in this moment. Perhaps in your mind's eye, you'd like to invite into your mind some people who are dear to you, perhaps your kin. Parents, if you have them. Children. Partners. I like to invite them in individually. I think of who, and then I say for them, peace and ease. And imagine they've stepped into my now expanded mind, like a big ballroom, and like inviting people to a party. Say this person's name, peace and ease. That person's name, peace and ease. This one's. Invite people into the party space, the mind space of peace and ease. As you sit, you can, from time to time, really emphasize as you're breathing in peace, as if it's smoothing out your mind, the intention. Your mind doesn't agitate in any way. Peace. And then as you breathe out, ease. And if you want to, could imagine that into this 
great room in which you've invited the people that you know and are your family, that you open all the doors in it so that it's open to the world and anyone can walk into it. So that they're walking in because the world is right there. And see if you can be in the middle of a vast, vast space of peace and ease. Well, you don't mind who walks in. Anybody can walk in. So you're in charge of the mind space. You can say peace and ease, or may all beings be peaceful, and come to the end of suffering. Whatever you like, just to let the mind relax and say everything is welcome. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given to me. And take the precept to not use my sexuality or my age or anything else about myself in a way that creates suffering for myself or anyone else. And to take the precept to speak in truth and in helpfulness and for my benefit as well as the benefit of others. And I undertake the precept to keep my mind as clear as it can be so that I can, in fact, fulfill all those precepts out of a place of wisdom.
and open your eyes when you're ready. I'm always glad to see everybody here. So here we are, and it's um, it's 12 o'clock in California. Um, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I look forward to when we all see each other again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.